Good morning, Bridgetown. Good afternoon, Jeddah, and good evening, Kolkata from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss why Germany phased nuclear out and why North Korea is phasing it in. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Doing very well, as always, Ethan. Uh, new week. How about you? How was your weekend? Uh, it was lovely. It was lovely. Thanks for asking. So we're talking nuclear today, and we're doing it in two very different contexts. Uh, do you want to start with the the kind of bad or maybe good or at least neutral news or start with the really bad and scary news? <laughs> what a choice. Well, it's Monday morning, so let's start with the less bad news to get us off to a start. <laughs> what a week it will be. Uh, so what happened in Germany over the weekend? Okay. So yeah, on uh, Saturday it was, Germany finally closed the last of its three remaining nuclear reactors, which ends a 62-year, I guess, experiment, a long experiment, uh, but yeah, a 62-year experiment with nuclear power. Uh, I sp- your framing was pretty spot on, I think. Uh, you know, some people are really thrilled by this news. Some people are furious with the closing of the nuclear reactors. Uh, and some people just don't really care one way or the other and think that nuclear energy can be replaced. So it's not a big deal to shut down the reactors. Okay, so let's go through these camps one by one and try to understand their arguments. Um why are some people thrilled? Well, I guess the funny thing here is that opponents of nuclear energy uh, and supporters of nuclear energy are usually kind of from the same camp. They're, they're sort of environmentalists. They just arrive at their positions on nuclear energy in a very different way. So for the opponents of nuclear energy, uh, they would say that it's not nearly as environmentally safe as people who support it would have you believe. They've got a pretty easy way to prove that, or at least some very, very uh, evocative examples, right? Uh, they have to, you know, Chernobyl in the in the 80s or Fukushima in the, in, I think it was 2011. Both of those meltdowns, those nuclear accidents, made the areas around them uninhabitable. They devastated natural life. Uh, I think that's a pretty, pretty powerful example of what happens when nuclear goes wrong. Um, even if it does have, you know, carbon-free benefits, it's it's you know it's clean fuel. The other point that I would say that opponents of nuclear energy make is that they say that we're up, we're yet to come up with a really good solution for storing the waste. Uh, right now, we kind of just dig a big hole and stick it all miles underground. Um, but if those facilities ever decay, or if there's an accident, or if the material starts leaking, life on Earth could be in some some serious trouble. Fair points. What, what about uh, the supporters of nuclear energy? What do they say? Well, they've got some pretty good points too, if you ask me. They point out the fact that nuclear energy is mostly carbon-free. Obviously, it's expensive to build and operate, but it is incredibly efficient, especially on a per square kilometer basis, by which I mean, if you think about the land that is required to build wind or solar farms, other kinds of renewable energy, then you compare it to a nuclear power plant, it needs a lot less land to do so, right? Simple as that. So it's a, it's it's far more efficient on a per, a per uh, square kilometer basis. But I think their best point is that nuclear plants can operate and deliver energy even on days when the wind isn't blowing, the sun isn't shining, you know, no matter the circumstances, nuclear power just plugs away and provides consistent energy. Um, uh, Ethan, I lived in, <laughs> speaking of Germany, I lived in Northern Germany for a while about a decade ago. And, and let me say I had a blast, but uh, I would not put 
amount of sunny days at the top of the reasons why I enjoyed living there. <laughs> what is the top of the list of, of reasons that you enjoyed living there, John? Uh, that would be the beer, Ethan. Uh, the beer and the fries and the chocolate, but the beer. The beer. <laughs> I think I bet that that's your favorite thing about almost any country you've ever been to, uh, <laughs> barring those that don't serve beer at all. No comment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, how about the, the neutral camp um, who don't mine nuclear energy but think it's replaceable? Yeah. Well, I suppose this is the, this is the view that I actually kind of won out in the German case. Um, Germany was supposed to actually close these nuclear reactors late last year, but they decided to wait until after the northern winter, um, which actually turned out to be a lot milder than many had feared. But they wanted to wait to shut them down, you know, so that uh, Germany could have some time to replace the energy that it used to get from Russia. And obviously now it doesn't get any from Russia because of the war. I I think a lot of the people in the kind of neutral, we'll call them the neutral camp, would have liked to wait maybe another couple of years um, before shutting down those those nuclear plants. But there was already too much momentum moving away from nuclear energy in Germany. Um, and as far as next steps for how Germany is going to replace uh, the nuclear power plant's energy load, um, their solar energy output is already the third highest in the world per capita. Uh, and the country looks set to expand that sector even more as the cost of solar continues to fall. They're also heavily investing in clean hydrogen, which is a clean burning fuel typically made by processing natural gas. Um, but it won't re- it won't fully replace coal for a while yet. A, a completely clean future is still quite a ways off. So um, Germany will still continue to rely on coal to keep its lights on. Yeah, and they're, they also are clearly still relying on natural gas to, to move right. through this energy transition. But John, clearly, I mean, no matter what your personal view is, there are valid arguments on all three sides of this debate. I have my own views. I'm sure you do, mm-hmm. too. Uh, we can maybe talk about them after the show. Uh, but where do other countries come out on all of this? On one end of the spectrum, you've got China, a huge, huge fan of nuclear power. They've already got 57 reactors in operation and are in the process of building almost two dozen more. And of the 57 reactors that they have in operation right now, 41 of those were built over the last 10 years. So it's pretty clear that China sees nuclear as you know the fuel of the future for them. Uh, I think France sees it the same way. They've got 56 reactors, which supply about two-thirds of the nation's electricity demand. You've got others that kind of sit a little bit along that spectrum, like Japan, who are understandably, you know, pretty, I wouldn't say anti-nuclear, but pretty skeptical given the experience during the war um, and the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster in 2011, as we talked about before. They're reluctantly embraced a nuclear future um, to make up for their energy shortfalls. But, you know, again, emphasis on kind of a bit of skepticism there in Japan. And then there's Italy, which has gotten rid of nuclear altogether. So... You know, Germany is kind of an outlier on one end of the spectrum, but um, I think there's probably a lot more countries that wish they could follow its lead. Today's show is sponsored by Todoist. Todoist is the easiest way to organize your work and your life. All you have to do is download the app to help build detailed to-do lists to keep on top of everything you need to do and to help delegate tasks to coworkers. I use it every day to keep on top of my schedule. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right. Welcome back, John. What's the bad news? 
Okay, well, unlike our first story, um, there are very few people, I imagine, that would consider this one anything as kind of bad and pretty troubling news. Um, and this is the story that on Thursday, North Korea announced that it has successfully tested an ICBM or, you know, an intercontinental ballistic missile to use the the full the full words. Um, but this ICBM was filled with solid fuel rather than liquid fuel. Now, I am no rocket engineer, as you may well know, Ethan, but the distinction is uh, quite important, I'm told. <laughs> um, but. More seriously, the idea here is that experts say that ICBMs that are, are equipped with solid fuel are much easier to hide and transport, and, and they take a lot less time to kind of get ready to launch. Uh, that's because unlike liquid fuel, which degrades inside a rocket over time, solid fuel can be put inside a rocket and just stay there ready to be used whenever. So instead of, you know, I think the analogy might be instead of taking a car to the gas pump before you drive it and filling it up and preparing it. It's like having the car filled up in the garage and, and ready to go whenever you want to. Um, so I guess, I guess if this news is true, um, and I say if, because at the moment it seems like um, we're mostly relying on North Korea's you know, state media, their word. Um, but if it is true, it makes their nuclear missile program a whole lot more effective. Is there any reason to think they, they might not be telling the truth? Well, I mean, it's, it's North Korea, so it's hard to know. Uh, you know, right. um, I think one of the interesting things to come out of the Pentagon documents that were leaked over the last couple of weeks um, was that uh, it seems that U.S. intelligence officials didn't expect North Korea to build a solid fuel ICBM like this until at least next year. Um, so there, I guess the I guess the takeaway is that their missile program seems to be accelerating at a pretty quick rate. In November, they successfully launched a missile called the Hwasong Seventeen. After years of struggling to get it airborne, um, that missile is propelled with liquid fuel, but was still widely considered both inside and outside North Korea to be the country's most powerful ICBM with the largest potential payload. Uh, and then last December, they tested an ICBM engine that they said could be equipped with, a, uh, with solid fuel. So shortly after that, Supreme Leader uh, Kim Jong-un instructed engineers to build a solid fuel ICBM in the shortest span of time, to quote him, which is a, a fun direction, isn't it? Just do it in the shortest time you can, and then off you go. <laughs> so by February, North Korea um, held a, a military parade, as they as they love to do, uh, in which they displayed an ICBM that analysts said appeared to be designed for solid fuel. So that that's kind of the timeline of of their missile program. Yeah, right. And that that ICBM that they displayed at the parade was called the the Hwasong eighteen, and that's the one that they. Uh, allegedly fired on Thursday. But what are North Korea's neighbors to the south saying about all this? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that they're not particularly happy for obvious reasons. Neither am I. Well, there you go. Well, you join Japan, uh, where thousands of people on the islands of Hokkaido in northern Japan were told to seek shelter um, as the test missile flew east from North Korea. So you're in good company. Um <laughs> Look, more like it's a very serious issue. To be honest, it's. Well, I know that we're we're both laughing at this because it's the only response, reasonable response. I think that's right. I think that you, you kind of have to have some gallows humor about this. But it, but it you know, it, it seems like this recent spate of tests is at least partially a response to military drills between the U.S. and South Korea that took place uh, in March. Those drills between South Korea and the US do happen pretty frequently, but the most recent exercise was apparently the biggest ever. Um, and, and I guess most worryingly, the communication hotlines between North and South are becoming increasingly closed off. And as we know from the Cold War, these hotlines are quite like 
pretty regularly, more regularly than you would like right. to imagine, uh, one of the few things that prevent serious accidents from happening. John, just to, to take a step back, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about the missile program. Um, it takes up a lot of the oxygen when we think about North Korea. But what else has been going on in the country uh, over these last few months. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Ethan, because it's, you know, in some ways missiles are like, you know, very sexy and and attract the attention. But I I think that's by design. I don't I think, you know, whatever, whatever is going on in the country is usually pretty ugly. And Kim's regime wants to distract from all that with big, exactly, you know, exciting military hardware. Right. But anyway, so this it is quite serious because North Korea is experiencing one of the most severe and widespread food shortages in recent history. Um, you know, North Korea is no no stranger to famine, um, and they're not alone in struggling with food security given the fallout from the Russo-Ukraine war. But they are managing it worse than most countries. Um, for starters, officials kept the country even more walled off than usual during COVID nineteen. It was really just literally a hermit kingdom. Um, and then a series of floods and severe droughts have badly damaged North Korean grain output. So they were about a, a million tons lower in output than what experts say the country needs to feed its population. Uh, thankfully, I guess, if there's anything to be thankful about that, it seems like the food shortage will, will uh, not be as severe as the famine in the 1990s. Um, that killed around half a million people, which is just unthinkable. Um, so that's kind of good news in a way, but there are still reports of people dying, um, and and that's that's the tragedy. You alluded to it. You alluded to it at the start. That's the tragedy of North Korea. While Kim's regime is doing everything it can to stay in power and show off its shiny missiles uh, and prevent any foreign efforts to kind of remove it from power by building what they think are scary missiles and advanced weapons, um, lots of people are suffering with no real recourse to do anything about it. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. A French court mostly upheld the government's plan to raise the retirement age for most workers from 62 to 64, which will now go into effect in September. Protests against the plan are expected to continue across the country. Violence erupted in Sudan's capital Khartoum over the weekend as two rival factions of the country's armed forces battled for control of the city. This is a big story. We'll cover it in more detail in the next episode of Intrigue Out Loud. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, former bodybuilder, Hollywood superstar, and California governor Arnold Schwarzenegger has become quite the community activist in retirement. But on one recent occasion, he did his community a lot more harm than good. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see how. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Wednesday.